0: You're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD. This episode is sponsored by AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo. Here's your host, Dr. Jacob Sands.
1: Welcome to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and joining me to discuss genomic testing and diagnosing HER2-mutated non-small cell lung cancer is Dr. Millie Das, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Oncology at Stanford School of Medicine and Chief of Oncology at Palo Alto VA. Dr. Das, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks so much, Jacob. It's great to be here.
1: So to start, Dr. Das. What aspects of this particular cancer subtype, particularly HER2-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, make it unique in your experience? And what has your experience been in counseling patients around the diagnostics and treatment?
0: Yeah, I think As we're doing more and more next-generation sequencing on tumor samples from our patients, we are detecting these rare driver subset mutations. And so HER2 really falls into that category. Her 2 mutations make up about two to four percent of all of our non-small cell lung cancer patients, and most of the mutations are within Exon20. And I think when we see this, you know, traditionally it had been considered an, a non-targetable mutation, though I think more recently we do have a number of drugs that have shown activity against this specific target. So it is really exciting that in non-small cell lung cancer with biomarker testing and more, use of next-generation sequencing that we are detecting these smaller subsets of patients who have these potentially targetable mutations. Of course, another reason to be doing NGS testing is to be able to offer our patients better than the standard of care, which is really platinum-based chemotherapy for most of our patients.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that genomic testing and for HER2 diagnosis that now within lung cancer, can you go a little bit into just the testing and and how you get the HER2 diagnosis and how you discuss that with patients?
0: Yeah. So her two mutations are frequently occurring in younger patients and never smokers, similar to the patient population with the EGFR and the ALK and the ROS1 alterations. And so when we're seeing these patients in the clinic, of course, we're not necessarily thinking immediately about her two. We're thinking about, does this patient have a driver mutation? And so it becomes key to perform biomarker testing in these patients. Many of us at our institutions have rapid testing for EGFR, ALK and ROS1 but HER2 is really not included in that rapid testing. And we get that result back usually on the NGS testing that's done, which can take a little bit longer, sometimes on the order of two to three, sometimes even four weeks. And so, you know, either way, I think it's really important to have that data because it just opens up other treatment options for these patients. And most likely in the relapse setting. Of course, we don't have any FDA approved therapies specifically for HER2 mutations, either in the first or second line setting at this time, though there's a lot of interest in the lot of clinical research that's happening to specifically target these patients. So that the need to do testing is absolutely there. You know, I would argue that we should be doing it up front for all of our patients, whether or not you wait for those results to start treatment, I think is really an individualized decision.
1: So you're discussing the individualized decision and discussion with patients and that partnership of that decision making. And I think for many oncologists, that's one of the more challenging aspects in counseling patients as they come in really eager to start treatment. So that scenario you're discussing then and how you decide whether to delay initial treatment for testing results or initiate therapy and testing, how does that counseling go for you and what are those discussions like with patients? What are some of the things that you find really work well in your discussions?
0: I think that's a great question. And I do understand that from a patient perspective, there's an urgency to get started, especially if the patient's not feeling well and is, you know, symptomatic from their lung cancer. And so in those situations, you know, we can really never go wrong by starting chemotherapy. So we do always have that as an option. For other patients, you know, we really want to think about offering targeted therapies with the hope of minimizing toxicity and really improving and increasing the odds of a response. And so, again, depending on the clinical situation, we sort of sit down together and we map out the different options. And I try to explain to patients there's usually not a definite right or wrong answer. It's really a matter of this is the information that we have. This is the additional information I'd like to get. And these are sort of the options that we have right now.
1: So you've discussed the genomic testing that's important at initial diagnosis. What patients are you testing? And amongst those patients that you would say should be tested at Stanford, how many of those are really ultimately getting that testing, would you say? And then the next level is across the community around you and the country. How extensive do you think is the testing being done?
0: Well, at both the institutions where I practice at Stanford and at the Palo Alto VA, sort of alluded to this, we have a rapid testing for EGFR, ALK, and ROS1. That testing is done reflexively through the pathology department for any non-squamous lung cancer histology. So typically, the NCCN guidelines recommend NGS testing for our non-squamous patients and then to consider it in squamous patients who may be light or never smokers or younger age. And so we definitely want to follow the guidelines and offer testing for these patient subgroups. I think it really is easier when testing is done reflexively through pathology rather than waiting for the patient to reach oncology and for the oncologist to request the testing. I think that that unfortunately just leads to further delays. So working with your pathology colleagues at your institution to ensure that they are doing this testing, again, for non-squamous histology, it should just be getting done. And so some institutions will have a rapid initial testing for EGFR ros one others will just go ahead and send the tissue for NGS testing. We know that as these platforms have been around for longer, that the testing time has gone down, which is great. So sometimes we do get results back within two weeks, which is great. And so if that testing was done reflexively at the time of biopsy and pathology reviewing this slide, by the time that patient gets to see you in clinic, you may already have the results. I mean, I think that is really the ideal scenario.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So, if we focus on that patient experience through this journey and the initial counseling and clinic, when you don't have a diagnosis and that discussion, what kinds of things could you advise on how to enhance that patient experience around that discussion of testing?
0: I think when we have patients who we're seeing and who have not had the testing performed on their tissue. So we can request that at our own institution when we're seeing that patient. And of course, working with our pathology colleagues to track down the tissue block to get that tested. Other times I'll, you know, just to expedite things, I'll also, if I'm meeting the patient in person, I'll recommend that we get a liquid biopsy. And again, I think tissue is always considered to be the gold standard, but particularly for those patients who have a higher burden of disease, where you feel that there's a higher likelihood of the patient having a targetable mutation, going ahead and sending a liquid biopsy at the time of the clinic visit, where the turnaround time is generally within a week for that. Of course, we know that if we get a negative result on the liquid biopsy, we still want to pursue the tissue testing. But those are ways that we can work with our patients to start trying to get these answers in a quickly and expeditious manner.
1: For those just tuning in, you're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Jacob Sands, and I'm speaking with Dr. Millie Das about enhancing the patient experience in dealing with her two mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Das, considering the heavy toll that cancer diagnosis often has on people, of course, that word itself often changes people's lives. And not just the patient, but their loved ones. So what do you recommend to help both the patients and their families manage kind of the burden of this disease from the time of initial diagnosis?
0: Yeah, I mean I always think about what it must be like to be in the patient's shoes. And oftentimes a lung cancer diagnosis really comes out of nowhere. And, you know, these patients are pretty distraught and their family as well. They weren't expecting this news. And I always encourage patients to bring their loved ones with them for their visits. If it's a virtual visit or an in-person visit, just having that support there. And so I think the key is really meeting the patient and their family where they are and taking the time to answer all of their questions because there are going to be many. And then, you know, of course, many of us work in centers where we have care navigators, and we have social workers, and we have the resources. It's really considered to be a multidisciplinary team approach to treatment. Continuing with the
1: discussion of an individual's journey with the diagnosis at the time when they initially come in, and particularly focusing on individuals with a diagnosis of HER2-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. How does that discussion go with patients? Not necessarily so much as far as which treatments, but just the process of choosing treatment options, recognizing that individuals are different. So you might have a spectrum of different dynamics that you're able to discuss.
0: Yeah, I think talking about HER2, so it's not as simple, I think, as EGFR, ALP, and ROS1, where we have randomized phase three data and FDA approvals for first-line targeted therapies. HER2 mutations, I think, are a little bit different. And so I think framing that in the context of these other more well-known mutations, our patients are very smart. They have read about their diagnosis. They know about some of these more common mutations. When we think about HER2, most of our patients are familiar with breast cancer. That's where HER2 has come up. So it's not as common in lung cancer. So explaining that this mutation does occur in lung cancer patients, albeit at a smaller frequency, again, 2 to 4% frequency. But when we see it, I think it provides an additional treatment option for our patients. And so in the first-line setting, I'll generally still offer these patients platinum-based chemotherapy but in the relapsed or refractory setting, we have other options. We can use off-label antibody drug conjugates that have been approved in the breast cancer setting. And we also always have clinical trials that are looking for specifically for these patients with the HER2 mutation. So I look not only just at our own center at Stanford, but I'm looking at surrounding academic facilities to see if there are trials that are actively accruing patients for the specific patient subset.
1: Well, Dr. Das, you've offered us a lot of insights. Before we close, anything else you'd like to add as far as HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer, counseling patients, the patient's journey, looking forward?
0: HER2-mutated lung cancer, again, is just a small subset of our patients, but I think the importance here is just NGS testing, next-generation sequencing testing that we really should be doing for all of our patients with a goal of personalizing cancer care and offering patients the potential for targeted therapies, either therapies that have already been approved or on a clinical trial. I think this is the way forward in lung cancer and cancer treatment in general. And I'm really excited to be part of this as a practicing oncologist treating lung cancer patients. Just in the past five years, we've seen tremendous improvements and we're going to continue to see these improvements and advances as we're discovering these rare subsets of mutations in our patients and to really be able to offer them more hope and better options.
1: Well, with those final thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Millie Doss, for joining me to share new perspectives on enhancing the patient experience in managing HER2-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Doss, wonderful having you on the program.
0: Thank you. It was my pleasure. This episode of Project Oncology was sponsored by AstraZeneca and Daichi Sankyo. To access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com projectoncology where you can be part of the knowledge.